Our scripture today comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7 and 15 and 16. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you will no longer call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Good morning. Oh, sorry, maybe I should say, how's it going, eh? Because I am a Canadian. <laughs> yeah, you might wonder if it's true, but I'd say no doubt about it. I am a Canadian through and through, so now I need to work on the accent. It's only taken me 20 years, so, uh, you know, but um, it's like a slow cooker, right? You know, sometimes you just got to let it simmer for 20 years, and then the end product is even better. So uh, anyways, I, I'm, I'm very uh, excited to be a dual, citizen, a, a dual citizen of both the UK and uh, Canada, my home and native land, or my home and adopted land. There we go. Uh, Proverbs uh, 24, let me just angle it a little bit that way. Proverbs 24 verse 16 says this, though the righteous fall seven times they rise again but the wicked stumble when calamity strikes proverbs 24 16 there is um, a perseverance and a grittiness that marks the life of the righteous that's the person for whom jesus christ is their righteousness there is a perseverance there is a principle in their life that means they fall down seven times and they rise again. They fall down seven times, rise again. The word here for fall in Hebrew is napal. And in the context of Proverbs 24, 16, it's clearly a negative word. The word fall is negative. You fall, which is bad, then you rise again, which is good. Like the Chumbawamba song, I get knocked down, but I get up again. You ain't ever going to keep me down. That's the only part of that song I can quote because the rest of it is highly inappropriate for a Sunday morning, but uh, that's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a very important line. I get knocked down, but I get up again. And that's really what uh, Proverbs 24 
is saying. But this word napal, which means fall, isn't in and of itself a negative word. It's just a word. It's a description of location. You were walking, so you were here, and then you fall, and you're here. That's all it means. It's it's a description of your location or your altitude. And in our scripture today, Genesis 17, the word napal or fall is actually used in a positive sense. Abram fell face down and God said to him, Genesis 17 verse 3, Abram fell face down and God said to him. Abram's lowering of elevation led to God's proclamation. His nearness to the ground was connected to his nearness to his God. And in the same way that Moses taking off his sandals for this is holy ground led to God's revealing himself to Moses through the burning bush, so Abraham's falling face down leads to him hearing from God. And here in Genesis 17, as Abraham is face down on the ground, God says some of his most precious and powerful and life-changing words to Abraham. Genesis 17, verse 3, Abraham fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very, very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. Yeah, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you, the whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their, their God. Can you imagine hearing those words from God as you are lying face down on the ground? Why am I making such a big deal that Abraham is face down on the ground? Well, one of the reasons is because we live in an age where we are, we are told that what happens on the outside, or physically, it doesn't matter because the true me and the true you, the true essence of who you are is inside. It is immaterial. It is spirit. And it is this misunderstanding, i.e. I'm a spirit trapped in a body that has led to a lot of confusion regarding medical assistance in death that has led to rather confusing messaging regarding our gender identity, right? If the real me is inside and is separate from the physical shell, then it doesn't matter what I do to my body. If I kill the body, then my spirit is set free. If I do uh, gender-affirming surgery, it doesn't matter because the real me is inside. Now, of course, I'm not minimizing those who are in the middle or in the throes of wrestling through these heartbreaking and very, very complex issues. But what I am saying is that Scripture seems to say that what we do with our body matters, that it is important, that our body, that our physicality, that our flesh matters, that the physicality of who you are and who I am is sacred, that God made our bodies and said it is good. 
And so I would also say this. Now, maybe you think, well, that's not me. But I'd also say this, that our misunderstanding that our physicality is sacred has also led to many well-meaning Christians come to church and say this. If I just sing the songs, then I'm okay. I don't need to clap. I don't need to kneel. I don't need to raise my hands or shout hallelujah, regardless of what uh, I'm feeling inside, because God knows my heart and he knows that in my spirit I mean what I say. But our, our physicality is inextricably tied to our spirituality, which is why scriptures say to raise hands and to shout and to sing and to praise and to kneel and to clap because worship is more than words. It's more than intentions. Worship is whole person, physical manifestation of an inner response to who God is. And so next time you feel the urge to raise your hands in worship or shout amen or dance or whatever, maybe give it a go. You won't hear a pastor say this very often, but obey the urge. It's okay to obey the urge. Scripture never tells us that we are spirits housed in a human body. We are body, soul, mind and spirit. We are all one thing. In the words of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Our strength is our physicality. Our strength is something that exists on the physical plane. In other words, our love of God is enfleshed in our strength. And when Abraham lay his body down in the presence and the glory of God, when he lay flat on the floor, Abraham was loving God with all his strength. Matt Redman wrote an album, in fact, a whole, uh, he wrote a song, but a whole album called Face Down. And the tagline to this album is, when we face up to the glory of God, we find ourselves face down in worship. This, this song explains that an acceptable response to the glory of God is not sitting on a pew, but it's actually falling face down. So he sings these words. He says, welcomed into the courts of the king, I've been ushered into your presence. Lord, I stand on your merciful ground, yet with every step tread with reverence. And I'll fall, I'll fall face down as your glory shines around. Yes, I'll fall face down as your glory shines around. Verse 2, who is there in the heavens like you upon the earth? Who's your equal? You are far above. You're the highest of heights. We are bowing down to exalt you. Now, I've not fallen face down uh, for a long time, but I know that Wendy does it more regularly as part of her worship expression but not me so much. And I think that maybe my failure to, 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 to lie, lie prostrate or to fall face down probably says more about me and my heart attitude than it does about the worthiness of God. In other words, maybe I'm not seeing God right. You see, when God showed up to Abraham in Genesis 17, Abraham's response is clear and immediate. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the Lord God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abraham fell face down. When God showed up 
and Abraham fell face down. I wonder how much of this was a calculated response or how much of it was an uncontrollable reflex. I don't have any choice. And I'm leaning towards the latter. I believe it was an uncontrollable reflex that God shows up and Abraham falls face down. And it's in the context of Abraham lying face down on the ground that God reveals his covenant. Last week, we talked about the three types of covenant, and we looked at the parity covenant, which is a covenant between equals. Equals. We also looked at another kind, the, the royal grant covenant, and scholars say that the royal grant covenant was the one that God made with Noah after the flood, which was the promise never to flood the earth again. And the royal grant was a covenant that was wholly dependent um, on God, on the king. He agreed without any condition to never flood the world again, regardless of how bad things got in humanity. But here in Genesis 17, we're actually looking at the other kind. On this list on the screen, it's actually number two, which is the suzerain vassal covenant or treaty, which is someone less powerful making a covenant with someone more powerful than them, which actually has a commitment on each side. So the one who is more powerful makes a commitment saying, I will do this if you do this. And the one that is less powerful um, says, uh, yes, I will do it. So, you know, you might think of maybe parents, like if you tidy your room, then you'll get ice cream, right? Something like, oh, you will get ice cream if you tidy your room. That's uh, maybe a a small modern day version of a suzerain vassal uh, covenant. And we see this in in the words that God chooses to use. He says this in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 17, the book of Genesis, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my, my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. So there's an understanding here, right? God's saying, I have a promise for you, Abraham, but I also have expectations. And in, in the light of this covenant being made with the Lord, Abraham falls face down. You see, when you're a vassal face-to-face with the suzerain, with the high king, you abase yourself. You lower yourself. You look away from the glory contained in the face of the high king. You, you can't make eye contact. You fall face down as you come face-to-face with the Lord. And even the name that God uses to refer to himself in this verse is a clue Verse 1, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Now, it says here that the Lord appeared. And uh, God's proper name, as it were in Hebrew, was not able to be spoken. But it could be represented by these four letters, Y-H-W-H. And these four letters are known by scholars as the Tetragrammaton. In other words, God's name, God's proper name, God's real name is so holy that the Jews refused even to speak it out loud. Now, later on, people added syllables in between the the four letters, which is where we ended up with the words maybe Jehovah and Yahweh. Okay, so so they've added in, uh, you know, the vowels thinking maybe this is the word, but we don't actually know how God's uh, true name is pronounced. And so in place of using his real name, or the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, they would instead write the Lord written in our Bibles with 
all caps. So every time you see the Lord, you know that it's a placeholder for the real name of God that was too holy to be uttered. It's kind of like the original, he who shall not be named from the Harry Potter series, but in a good way. So in this verse, we have the Lord or Yahweh showing up you know, to Abraham and he introduces himself with these words, I am God Almighty, or in Hebrew, I am El Shaddai. El meaning God and Shaddai meaning Almighty. So you could also say, uh, I, am, I am God the all-sufficient one, or I am God the overpowerer, I am God the strong. This is how the Lord reveals himself to Abraham. So no wonder that Abraham fell face down um, in front of the presence and the glory of the Lord, whose name is unspeakable, but who reveals himself as God Almighty. And here's what I find really beautiful in this whole um, moment is that God the Almighty, God the Strong, God the Overpower, God the All-Sufficient One, who's so holy his name cannot be named, who literally does not need us and did not need Abraham in any way or form, he takes time out of his day running the universe to break into Abraham's reality, to make a covenant with this no, with this nobody in the middle of nowhere. The amazing thing here is that God showed up and I find this amazing um, meeting point of God's all-consuming power and his yearning for proximity to us. And this is summed up in Psalm 91. Whoever dwells in the shadow, in the shelter of the Most High, will rest in the shadow of the Almighty, or Shaddai. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. It's through Christ, friends, that we can rest in the shelter, in the shadow of Shaddai. It's incredible stuff. And so God shows up and Abraham falls face down. Now, I've already said that Abraham's uh, response was likely an uncontrollable reflex. You know, like when you're walking at home and someone jumps out of the shadows and you scream, okay? That's an uncontrollable reflex. That's probably what was going on here instead of a calculated response. However, I do also believe that sometimes making the calculated choice of getting down on your face before God is a good thing. In fact, I wonder whether it's something that we should maybe be doing more often. In fact, maybe this week is a good time in the quiet of your own home to get down on your face before God. Instead of sitting in the comfy chair or at the dining room table as you do your morning devotions, why not take the risk and get down on your face before God as an act of faith and as an act of worship. I wonder, in fact, how it would impact or change your time with the Lord. You could even take the words of God to Abraham and, and, and you, could turn it, it, you could turn it into a breath prayer while you're lying prostrate on the ground. You could lie there and say, you are God Almighty. Help me to walk before you faithfully. You are God Almighty. Help me to walk before you faithfully. And uh, if, if, you, if you do have a cell phone, and 
and you want to take a picture of that to, to remind yourself, I'll leave it up for a few more seconds. But Lent is a great time for us to do this, to love the Lord your God with all your strength by, if you're able, using your muscles to lower yourself to the floor, to get up close and personal with the dust particles and the dirt and meditate on the greatness of God. Back to our passage. It's while Abraham is prostrate on the ground that God gives him his instructions. That Abraham learns what is his or Abraham's side of the bargain. And this is what the Lord says. He says, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and I will greatly increase your numbers. So Abraham's side of the covenant is is this. Walk before God faithfully and be blameless. Now, if you're a gym rat, which uh, I am not, you know that you've got to isolate various muscle groups in order to work on them. So you've got leg day and abs day and arms day and glutes day. I don't know. Does anyone do glutes day? It's kind of weird, but maybe you do. But, the, you know, there's, uh, you know, each you, you, you isolate the various muscle groups. And in the Christian life, in the life of following Jesus, we also need to focus on different aspects of our relationship with the Lord. And so here in Genesis 17, we're introduced to two helpful postures that we should be regularly practicing. The first one, as I've already said, is falling face down and acknowledging that the Lord is God Almighty, that he is El Shaddai. And the second posture comes out of the first posture, and we encounter this one in verse 1. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. So we've got lying face down and walking facing God faithfully. These are the two postures we see, lying face down and walking facing God faithfully. These are two postures that if we implement them in faith, they will help us avoid all sorts of struggles and pitfalls in our lives. And the thing is, that they're not separate things. They're actually linked. They're actually connected. Let me explain. In the English, we don't see it. But in the Hebrew, it's clear. So if you were reading the Hebrew scriptures, you would have got this connection straight away. Because fall face down is fall pane down. Fall face down. Abraham fell pane down. He fell face down. And the walk and the phrase walk before me in Hebrew is walk pane me. Or I guess we could say in English, walk, walk facing me. So you fall face down and you walk facing God. So, so we are to live our lives to walk looking at God and facing God in the light of God. Walking towards him, facing him, and we're to lie face, face down. So you could maybe sum it up by saying this. We are lying face down in worship and we're walking face up in faith lying face down in worship and walking face up in faith. And of course, this seems to be a bit of a contradiction. How can you walk facing God when your natural reflex, and you know, when you're encountering the glory of God, is to face down? How can you walk facing God when your natural reflex is to fall face down? Well, this morning, I have the answer. I have the solution. Actually, I don't. And I wouldn't want to give you the solution even if I had it. And here's why. Because when we encounter 
confusing or paradoxical statements like this. Our instinct is to instantly reconcile them, you know, to tie them up neatly, you know, to cut them down into bite-sized chunks so that we don't even have to think about them as we swallow them and then we move on to the rest of the day. But when we encounter the mystery of God in, in passages like Genesis 17, our first response shouldn't be to try to reconcile, but it should be to worship, to marvel, to wonder, Mysteries like this face down, face up, you know, conundrum in Genesis 17 are like a secret entrance into the Holy of Holies. They are an invitation to stand at the precipice of who God is, get as close to the edge as you can get without falling off. Thoughts like this, moments like this, can induce holy vertigo. We went for a walk in Wales with my family, my sister and her family, and my parents. We were walking along Worms Head, uh, which is this grass, grass-covered peninsula that kind of sticks out into the sea. And it's windy, and it's really blustery. There are sheep all over, and the only thing that can grow um, on Worms Head is uh, grass and maybe gorse bushes. And then halfway along the peninsula, we stop for lunch, and my brother-in-law is in his wheelchair because he just had surgery on his feet. And, and, the, and so we climbed down into to this uh, sheltered nook that was cl- quite close to the edge of the cliff. And I felt, as I climbed down here, I felt a little bit nervous. Um, because I hate heights. And so we sit for lunch, and I'm kind of pressed into the cliff here, as close as I can, without it seeming like I'm freaking out, right? Because, you know, you, you want to be cool. And, uh, and then I'm kind of looking to see if Wendy's okay. But really, it's just about me trying, you know, to cover my fear with a pretend concern for my wife. And then while we're eating lunch, my sister's eldest, Finn, is clambering around on the rock, like right by the edge of the cliff. And Finn sat there with legs swinging over the edge, you know, and maybe crouched down like this. And, uh, and Finn is totally at ease. But I am not relaxed. I am not enjoying lunch. I act like I am. I act like I'm cool with Finn being right there at the edge of the cliff, but I'm not. And the question is, did my fear impact Finn's pleasure? Not in the slightest. But did Finn's freedom impact my pleasure as I ate my lunch? 100%. And here's the thing, is that when we start to lean into these seemingly conflicting passages like we read in Genesis 17, we can easily say, let's retreat to safer ground. Let's go inland. Let's go where there is no risk or danger. But for me, I will always remember that cliff edge of worm's head and the joy that Finn had, because joy is somehow tied in with risk. I feel joy on the mission field because I'm out of my comfort zone. I feel joy exploring a new place or trying out a new song. I feel joy as I do things that even um, require a little bit of risk. 
Some of you feel joy as you try a project at home that you've never had the courage to try before. There is joy in treading close to the edge. There is joy in trying to test out where the limits are. There is joy in risk. But you know where there's not joy? Sitting inland or safe and secure, wrapped and warm, day after day after day after day. But verses like Genesis 17, 1-2 take us a bit closer to the edge. It paints a picture of a God that we cannot look at, but who we are to look upon as we walk with him, a face down and a face up God. And theologically, here's what I would say, is that if your understanding of God hasn't changed or morphed or grown since you were in Sunday school, if it's never gone beyond, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, if your God is only a God of neat edges and tidy summaries and zero mysteries, then I would ask you why. Why hasn't it grown? And so we're invited to wrestle with passages like this. We're invited to ask ourselves, how can I more intentionally fall down in worship? Where we ask, how can I walk, walk before God in the face of God, with the glory of God's countenance upon me? This glory that caused Abraham to fall face down. How can I live both face down and face up. Now, I want to leave us with one word that I think maybe ties things a bit together this morning, and it's again in verse 1. See, see we have all these verses. We've hardly gone out of verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am Lord Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Now, If you were raised in the church, you see the word blameless and your heart sinks. It's like, oh, how can I ever do that? How can I ever be sinless? How can I ever be blameless? How can I ever check all of those things off on that list? But the word in Hebrew, as it says here, is actually translated far more regularly, whole. Be whole. In fact, in the Hebrew and English lexicon of the Old Testament, this is how the word, uh, which is translated blameless in English, is actually translated far, far more regularly. Number one, complete, whole, entire. Number two, whole, sound, healthful. Number three, complete, entire. Number four, sound, wholesome, unimpaired, innocent, having, having, having integrity. Number five, what is complete or entirely in accord with truth or fact. And so when God says, walk before me and be blameless, he seems to be saying, walk before me and be whole. John Golden Gate says this, more literally, God wants Abraham to be whole, though in our context, that would have psychological overtones. God wants Abraham to be wholly committed to God's ways. God doesn't expect him to be sinless. God is realistic and can cope with people making moral mistakes. Isn't that the whole of the Bible? Rather, God looks for a certain direction in people's lives, a certain cast to their lives, a fundamental moral wholeness or straightness. And what God calls Abraham to, i.e. being whole, in Christ, he calls us to exactly the same thing, to a wholeness, 
who are cast in our lives to a certain direction that can only be found in Christ. So this leads me to ask, you know, the question, as we live a face-down, face-up life, a life of falling face-down and walking face-up towards God, could this, could this paradox, could this juxtaposition be the very thing that leads us to a life of wholeness, of integrity, of blamelessness with our covenant-keeping God? It is in Christ that we see the fullness of the glory of God. It says in Colossians 2 verse 9, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Hear that, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. Christ is the one who we turn face down to in worship and the one who we turn face up to as we follow him. So here's a couple of meditation questions as you leave this morning. How can you incorporate more falling face down in your worship of God Almighty of El Shaddai? What does it look like in your current chapter of life for you to be walking face towards God in faithfulness? What does wholeness or integrity look like in your current circumstances? Falling face down and walking face up seem to be a paradox, a mystery, that yet they are both part of a life of wholeness. How willing are you to get close to the edge of the cliff? And so as you think about that, let me close with Paul's words to the Romans, another one of our lectionary readings this morning. Verse 18, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were not for him alone, but for also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Verse 25. He was delivered. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Mm-hmm.